Whether you grew up in the city, country, or suburbs, most of us have deep emotions imprinted in our memories as to the place where we're from. In BT's neighborhood, we'll investigate two questions, who am I and whose am I? These questions, we hope, will point us in a more distinct direction of knowing how to live into the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. How can we love those around us, especially those who challenge or oppose us, if we don't even know who we are or how to express love for God, others, and ourselves? So take a walk with us, learn where to buy your groceries and where to find a good conversation. This podcast is brought to you by Roberts Wesleyan University in conjunction with the Office of Spiritual Life. We want to welcome you to the neighborhood. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another edition of BT's Neighborhood, a podcast right here on the campus of Roberts Wesleyan University. You know, this semester, we have been talking about the theme, Becoming. When we learn to be with God, who we are can come forth in uh, natural ways. And so we've had some great uh, movements within this theme. Now, I'm guessing that today's special podcast, we're going to probably touch on all of these a little bit, Uh, but I'm really grateful for today's guest. And this is kind of a a special edition in honor of Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month. And uh, not only that, but, you know, this podcast was in part this guest's uh, idea. And so I'm so grateful he could be here with us. Uh, Folks, welcome with us today, uh, Jay Newman. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Jay, why don't you introduce yourself to the folks listening and uh, let them know who you are and what you do on campus. I'm Jay Newman. I'm the Director of International Engagement. It means that I'm basically in charge of our international students coming in, and I also oversee uh, the study abroad programs for our students going. Um, it feels to me like it's a kind of crossroads of different cultures and identities, and that's certainly something that I've been interested in here at Roberts long before I entered the office about a, two years ago. I also teach creative writing on campus. I know that you love stories, you know, us celebrating um, Asian and Pacific Islander Heritage Month is not only about those stories, but that those stories are part of the American story. Um, let, let me start here. And um, as a story person, why are these stories important for us to talk about? There's places where if you grow up, you could walk down the street and see lots of people who you could identify with. And I don't just mean racially. I just mean like people who you feel like they understand you, they get you. You don't have to like, change anything about yourself you don't have to translate anything about yourself you just you feel like you connect and you're understood like in our country we've had a lot of dialogue over the last 10 or 15 years about how that looks and how that feels for some people who don't necessarily have those experiences all the time and I would just say growing up as like an Asian American kid in a town where my sister and I and our neighbors we were the only Korean kids in the whole town we were the only minorities So I didn't really have a lot of points of access to have any other thoughts. In fact, I was the oldest, and so I was supposed to know the most, (laughs) I felt like, and I knew nothing. Uh, All I knew about my culture was what was in this little book that came with me. It was facts about Korea. 
Mm. I read that thing like 150 times. Oh, wow. And uh, I used to memorize it. I would know like that the national sport was like soccer and taekwondo, um, you know, basic, basic things. And for me, it was just, you know, it's pre-internet. Mm. The only context you have for a place that's on the other side of the world is what you're seeing in a book. So wow. that was the only way it was true. Now, how old were you when you were reading that? And yeah, so it started when um, I was well, I was adopted before I was one. So okay. I grew up and I only knew English. It's all I have is little scattered bits of Korean that I've kind of picked up. For for me, I asked more questions when I started going to school, and I'd have these different encounters where kids would say things. And most of the time, it's just the same kind of stuff that all kids deal with. Yeah, yeah, and. Um, you know, my parents did a good job, I think, overall, trying to just say, like, if they say something rude or whatever, you, you it's just because uh, they're jealous. But, you know, <laughs> that only gets you so far, yeah. I think, until you realize, like, when, you know, I was also a soccer player, high school soccer player, and you go around and these people kind of don't know you from anyone else, and you hear different things, and some of it wasn't really wholesome or, or wonderful, and... I started to kind of have a picture of myself as someone who, well, why would they be jealous of me? They don't know me, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the, the kind of younger narrative that I had um, of the way things were working in the world, it wasn't fitting anymore. And so by the time I was in fifth grade, I started to have uh, doubts about how my parents kind of saw things. I think growing up a lot, there was a tendency to want to make things not about race. Oh, we're all the same. You know, there's no mm, color. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think a lot of a lot of teachers who kind of talk that way, they they do it out of love, but they also do it out of blindness because they've never really known what it's like to kind of go into a room and you're the only <laughs> yeah, yeah. you're the only person that looks like you in the room. That's been basically like my whole my whole life. It's a unique and kind of startling kind of thing. In fact, I'll tell you this one story because you know I like stories. <laughs> the first time that I was ever surrounded by Asians was when my sister, who's Korean as well, she and I were like at, you know, one of those rest stops when you're like driving on the highway and you just, you have to eat like McDonald's. Um, we were at like one of those rest stops and you might see these like tour buses that have like, you know, they're from China or Japan, kind of touring uh, the country. Well, one stopped at the rest stop where we were. And just my sister and I just sitting there, you know, probably talking about like Ninja Turtles or Sonic the Hedgehog or something. And mm. all these Asians come in and they just start like filling this cafeteria where we're eating. And it's the first time where like she and I were like looking around and we're like, whoa, this is a... Uh, oh, wow. This wow. is the first time this, this has ever happened. I would just say like... For some people who can't imagine how disorienting or strange that is, I would just say that it was, for me, it was a kind of moment where I realized what, like to some extent, I never experienced before. Mm. My wife had a, a similar experience when we went to Korea in 2010. Uh, I went on a short-term missions trip, and uh, we went to the very same orphanage where uh, I had been uh, dropped off by my birth mom. She basically um, come to the same room where that had happened. So that was a pretty mm -hmm. powerful experience. But you know, while we, we were there, Tasha and I were w walking down into this bookstore. Uh, she she kind of 
like walked into this kind of Barnes and Noble-ish kind of store and there was just like tons of Koreans just like hanging out, reading, <laughs> studying. And she got it for the first time. Like, you know, because there she is. She, my my wife, if, if you don't know her, she's, you know, British, as my kids like to say. <laughs> she's sticking out, you know, and she's kind of feeling uh, like the everyday experience for for me uh, and for a lot of other other folks too and so I would just say these stories matter because for a lot of people they're rare and anything that's kind of rare has an intrinsic value I would say yeah that's great you know I can um, remember times myself of just walking into it walking well it happens all the time you're um I think it's a W.E.B. Du Bois who calls it double double consciousness this idea that I'm always aware of the fact that I'm different Mm -hmm. and having to live with that and trying to uh in my case justify it all the time or and sometimes you could be made to feel like you're the one that's creating a problem because you're aware that there are some differences even at like nine or ten I was starting to think through things and like it didn't make sense like the way that people try to portray you on a page or describe you in a in a word or a term yeah asian american is something that i don't even know what it means yeah I've yeah been living in it for 40 plus years so. yeah yeah there's so much more to who you are and who we are as as, as people your work on campus it seems that and i know that it, it's true that your past experiences have shaped you in such a way that um, me knowing you, <laughs> there has to been a uh, there has there has to have been a lot of thought into your experiences, and now how you respond and work with other students. What would you say are some of the ways that your past has helped you bring that to today's work with students? Yeah, I appreciate it, that question. I think for for me growing up. Um, I was a community builder. Uh, I was on my soccer team. It was important for me to be inc- inclusive and like make make a thing that mattered, that people cared about, and mm. that I felt good to belong to. Like through most of my life, even like through my church experiences and the different places I've been, we've hosted small groups or invited students over to our house. And for a, a, for a large part, I would say like. To find community, I had to make it. Um, I had to be somebody who would kind of go out and take those steps to initiate those relationships. But on this campus, that I have this interest in just wanting people to feel like they belong and that they have people that they can connect with. As a first-year student at a liberal arts school in Ohio, I remember feeling this um, most odd kind of feeling come over me my freshman year of college when I remember thinking no one knows that I'm American here not one person so I was there I was on the men's soccer team you know I had a really decorated high school soccer career I was just this like Asian kid that people were going to kind of assume couldn't speak English and there I was an English major you know there I was like dead set uh, at 18, someone who was going to become an author, and I knew it, but it didn't matter. Um, and so for me, in my work and what I do in like a classroom or 
through my office. I try to see like a larger range of who someone is. Yeah. And I try to allow them to have room to express that part of who they are because I know I know what it's like to kind of be minimized and to not really be seen for the fullness of who you are. Yeah. It's it's so strange. It's uh it's a paradox because you're seen but yet you're highly invisible. Uh things about you based on your sight, but you're like I've got this whole other side to me that you still don't know me as a person. Yeah, I think so. And I think like for a lot of us, just our different personalities, we are a little bit guarded about like revealing our true self. But like, I think even for me, like to a certain extent when I'm around campus, like I still like, I want to be seen as someone who's responsible and somebody who's going to do the right things for uh, his office and his, the students that he serves and stuff, but I also want to be able to like tell jokes and like yeah. I think the people who know me the most know that like that's who I am. There's a a tendency for a lot of us to kind of just see a person, and if we already kind of have our group of or our people that we belong with in our connection, our clique, then they're easy just to kind of set aside and yeah and see as like. Well, that's that's great. I'm glad that those people are here on our our campus, but I'm not really gonna I'm not really gonna be curious about finding out more about them, even if there's more to discover in those relationships that could really, in some ways, change and uh, challenge us to become better versions of who we want to be. Wow, wow. Um, one of the things that I appreciate you about you is that well, is watching students respond to you like you are probably one of the most loved people on this campus by students. And I, I think that's because you do see them, but then you engage them in a way uh, that brings value to them. Let's, it lets them know that they're important. And I can say that because I've worked with you in, uh, in a close capacity and I've, I've been able to see that and uh, I appreciate that, and that's one of the things that I uh, have learned and am learning from you. I think sometimes the, the busyness of trying to get things done, we put people into these nice little boxes, and we move on in order to get, some, get stuff done, but we really don't take the time to treat people like the persons they are. And uh, I think that's something that um, that we can do better at, uh, not only as a campus, but just as human beings. Most of the time, students now live in this world where they feel they need to prove themselves and they need to come out of the package of college already something. And I just, I'm so, I'm so dead set against that in terms of them putting that pressure on themselves because I know that they're gonna be who they are. And I just want them to have a little more like grace for themselves because no one graduates at 22 and has <laughs> the whole like the whole thing worked out. And you know, I see so many students trying to get the grades and I see so many people hustling to, to be in so many clubs so that it, it has a certain look or feel to it. And I just, I just want them to, slow down, put slowness and intentionality into what they're doing because I feel like that's 
That's the missing thing. Most people's schedules slowing down. You know, I, I make people read poetry for part of my job, you know. <laughs> um, if you're not slowing down, then everything loses its value because yeah. everything stays at breakneck pace. Mm-hmm. Man, you reminded me of a story I had with a student when I worked at a local high school in Rochester. And uh, I was kind of teasing this kid. We were talking about, you know, music. And it was kind of the thing I was intentionally being like, oh, you don't know what, you young whippersnappers don't know what real music is. And we were just kind of laughing. And so I told him I wanted him to listen to some John Coltrane. And he was like, oh, I could do that easily. I was like, no, you couldn't do it. I was like, you need a beat, you know. And um, and so he took it. He took the CD. That's how long ago this was. <laughs> he took the CD, and he was like, okay, I'm going to listen to it. And I, as a joke, I said, okay. And then write me a one-page report on it when you finish, and just laughed. And he came back the next day and left the CD and the one-page report on my desk. And I was kind of shocked. And, you know, as I read it, you know, he said that um, when he first started to play the music, he just thought, this is too slow. I can't do it. And so he stopped. But then he was like, no, I'm going to do this. And he let it play again. And he said that it was so slow that it caused him to actually slow down and think about his life. And he was like, that was the first time that he had spent some time reflecting on decisions that he's made and what's transpired in his life. And he realized, like, wait a minute, the music that I listen to is so fast-paced that I don't slow down enough, you know? And so I feel like that's kind of what you're, you know, getting at here about slowing down. You brought some works of art with you today. Here, You brought a book that you wrote. Um, Why don't you introduce that to our listeners and maybe share something with us here? So I wrote uh, a book of poems um, when I was in college and sure that it was going to win every award imaginable in the, in the entire country. And I was so shocked that it didn't happen. But what happened was uh, I started this like 10-year trek to turn this book that was really just a bunch of sad poems about wanting to be connected to like a birth family. Mm-hmm. And it became a completely different book. So the book became more about how God keeps his promises and how when I was a kid and I would see an airplane, it would elicit a kind of like almost like a hardness in me where I would get upset, especially on the days where like identity wise, I didn't feel like I fit in with other kids. Like I was always more quiet. I was always more like, I don't want to come off sound the wrong way, but like higher achieving because like was in me that I didn't want to fail because I felt like I was given such a great gift to be able to be here. But I remember um, Mm. like just this kind of movement where to finish the book, I had to have that trip to Korea and meeting my birth mother and then discovering that the book was really about becoming this unnamed orphan to Mm. naming my own kids Mm. and how... God was giving me the space and time to be able to write the book of poems that I was going to write, and not just a book, which I was ready to do 10 years ago, Lord, but I didn't want, he didn't want to do that. <laughs> I'll just read one poem. I'll read uh, this first poem. 
It's called uh, Apartment Near Airport. Um, we used to live uh, at this apartment in Rochester. That it felt like there's we were in the direct path of the planes that they would fly like right over our house. And uh, this is the poem: Soft words folded into envelopes of prayer. The dogs hear it first. Not my prayer, but the sound of shadows in the neighboring trees. I can feel the shadow of the engine before I hear it. Body at rest, I wrestle with God, nurse wounds in the dark. Bracing for the heavy presence of the plane, I cringe in its sound, crawl out, holding wings while still hips rest to reveal a man who was never a child. A man who wanders airports alone at night, attracted to the ebb and flow of runways. Where beneath the grindings of identity, there's comfort in the fading echo, a tale of the plane vanishing into layers of mysterious clouds. I'll, I'll confess, I came in with the mindset of leaning into your Asian heritage. But now hearing the layers of, you know, identity and that of man, okay, there's a part of that that you're connecting to, but then the deeper of man, my family, you know, that, that whole piece. And, um, you know, this semester, as we've talked about, you know, becoming uh, identity formation is just such a, a major part of that, of answering the question, who am I? Wanting to be wanting to know who you are, but also wanting to be known by others. And there's some elements of that that I hear uh, in that poem. But what were some of the things that you were contrasting in that poem? I think what was most important to me, like around 2005 or whenever I wrote that poem, was that I think when you're trying to draw close to God and you're trying to pray, I think sometimes words get in the way. We feel these things. They're already in us. We can kind of like just let him kind of float up to him in my in my own mind of praying. Sometimes I think we make it sound holier or more emotional when it's already there. So I remember just feeling like the answers were in root and that there was nothing else that I had to do. I think for anyone who is working through something as a Christian, having like doubts or having hard feelings about how things feel in a moment. I think that's what I wanted the poem to kind of do, to express that you can bring all that. You can be completely unable to sleep. You can feel miserable inside. Yeah. And you can still feel intrinsically drawn to a hope because you believe it. You believe it to be true. Because when I think about the things that generally people just want to be able to share their story and be themselves and be accepted for that. I think some people don't tell their story because there's just so much going on and it gets blocked. I would just say for, you know, for AAPI month, like the, the thing that I just want to get across is that some people don't feel like they have permission to tell their story because it's going to make them other. It's going to make them yeah. seem weaker. And I just want all people to be able to kind of put your guard down just a little mm. because when we put our our guard down i feel like that's where 
God can work in that space. Yeah, I can't say any more than what you've said and the gift that you've given us here today. Folks, that's uh, Professor Jay Newman, um, one of, uh, I, I would say, the, the most compassionate men I know on campus. And, uh, and uh, if you see him around, strike up a conversation, say hello to him. Jay, thanks for being our guest. And uh, I hope this podcast has been meaningful for you. If it is, reach out, let us know. And I hope you've been blessed by this podcast. Shout out to Amanda for being behind the controls. And uh, we'll see you next time in BT's Neighborhood. Thanks again for listening to this episode of BT's Neighborhood, where we aim for simple but deep conversations about being a good neighbor here and now at Roberts Wesleyan and wherever our paths take us in the future.